Well, good morning again. It is uh, good to see you, and it's good to be with you on this Sunday morning uh, for worship. My name is Eugene. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, if you're visiting with us, uh, we're especially glad that you're here and want to uh, extend a warm welcome to you. If this is If you're just passing by, then hope you enjoy Boston in this weekend. But if you're here and you're new to the city and you're looking for a church, uh, please let us know how we can help you connect and plug in and find some community here in this place. Uh, we, we definitely would like to, uh, to help you get uh, fitted in somewhere uh, that could really help you grow. Um, just a couple quick announcements before we get going. Uh, tomorrow, uh, uh, our church has uh, made a, a commitment to uh, work with St. Stephen's. Uh, that really ranges back over a year and a half, but tomorrow we're helping St. Stephen's with their summer program called Be Safe. And uh, it's essentially a, a summer program for low-income families in the Boston area to provide a safe place where they can learn, where they can grow, where they can be enriched. Um, and so uh, we are actually preparing lunch for them tomorrow for, uh, I want to say, close to 80 uh, young people and volunteers and adults. And so Um, it's happening tomorrow, and the wheels are in motion, and it's going to happen with or without you. But if you're interested in helping, we'd still love to have you, uh, have you come along for the ride and, and help us serve the food or put it together or whatever that might be. And so uh, if you're interested in this and you're free tomorrow morning uh, through tomorrow afternoon, uh, send an email to info at cornerstoneboston.org, and we will put you in touch with Roger Moon, who's been heading up this, uh, this uh, activity. And... Uh, Again, Roger has volunteers, but, you know, you can never have enough volunteers for this kind of work. And so uh, that's happening tomorrow. And uh, also just want to remind you that uh, for the last three weeks, we've been meeting here on Friday nights from 7 to 9 uh, for a time of community, for a time of uh, testimonies, a time of worship and prayer. And this is open to, to anyone and to everyone. And, and, and really, it's a great place uh, to build relationships with people that you might not ordinarily come into contact with here at Cornerstone. Uh, again, if you're new, this is really the, the best place to sort of on-ramp into our community because it's a smaller setting. We have a time of small groups. Uh, and then we're listening to stories of what God is doing in the lives of people in our church community. And so it really is a good place to get connected. And so uh, if you're free on Friday nights, uh, for the next five weeks we'll be here uh, from 7 to 9. Uh, just come uh, as you can, whenever you can, and we'd love to have you here. Um, and so uh, with that said, uh, let me uh, talk about where we're going over the next seven weeks uh, as a church here on Sundays. Um, if you've been here with us this point in the summer, we've been talking about our relationship with God in respect to spiritual disciplines, and we've called that series Rhythm, uh, how we can walk with God and, and deepen our relationship, our connection with Him through prayer, through Bible study, through reflection, through resting, through worship. Today, We're starting a new series on community called Friends and Family. And over the next seven weeks, uh, we'll be, you'll be hearing five sermons that really are addressing uh, the idea of community, uh, of relationships, uh, particularly friendships. Uh, we're going to spend a week talking about our familial relationships, uh, parents and children. And we'll also talk about uh, the need and necessity for forgiveness in community. Because without forgiveness relationships won't last very long because sooner or later, someone you know, whether they're uh, a brother or a sister, a mom or dad, a cousin, a friend, a neighbor, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband or a wife, they will hurt you. They will hurt you. If you and, and you know this because uh, we've all been living long enough to know that people hurt us intentionally and unintentionally. And without the ability to extend forgiveness, those relationships won't last very long. 
We have to learn what it means to forgive those who hurt us and offend us and step on our toes. And so we'll be talking about uh, this as it really relates to community here at Cornerstone, but in our broader context as well. And so to begin today, we're going to take a look at James chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 to 12. And I'd like uh, us to read that together at this time. James chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 1 to 12. James begins this way. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think, Scripture says without reason, that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and one judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Can you join me in a word of prayer? Uh, Lord God, as we spend some time reflecting on James's letter to the church, uh, would this really be a, a personal encounter for us? Uh, as James intended to address issues within the church in his day, Lord, would we take a step back and recognize that those same issues exist in our church, in our relationships, in our community today. And so, Lord, may we open our ears and our hearts and our minds to receive the word you have for us today. Lord, that you might heal us, that you might edify us, that you might build us up to be a community that shows the world that we belong to you because we love one another the way that you have loved us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, just real quickly, let me uh, talk about what James is doing here. Uh, James wrote this letter to the church as a prescription of what life should look like once it has encountered the gospel. So what James is doing is he's telling you what your life should look like after you've been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's very important. Because if you don't recognize that, you can read James and think, this is how I get saved. This is how I receive the gospel. This is how I go to heaven, by doing these things. But James is not saying, this is not how you get saved. This is how you live after you've gotten saved. And so from 1 to 3, chapters 1 to 3, James is talking about how to live out your life post 
gospel reception, and now he addresses the community. And he says, this is what the community should look like as it embraces the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what we should look like if we are Christ's followers, if we have been transformed by the incredible message of God's love in Scripture to us, but through the life and death of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Now, community is addressed over and over in the Scriptures, and it is important because it is biblical and it is theological. Let me share a quote from you uh, from a book called Community 101. It says, Community finds its essence and definition deep within the being of God. Oneness is primarily a divine mode of being that pertains to God's own existence, independently from and prior to any of his works of creation. In other words, God, as he exists in perfect harmony, as a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit, that is the way he exists, and therefore, as he has created community, that is the way he intends us to exist as well, in perfect harmony and relationship. He goes on to say, whatever community exists as a result of God's creation, it is only a reflection of an eternal reality that is intrinsic to the being of God. We are just reflecting God's oneness, God's community. Because God is eternally one. When he created in his image, he created oneness. And so community is important because it is theologically true. It is the essence of God. We reflect God when we are in perfect community. That's why when Jesus prayed in John 17, he said, God, make them one so that the world will see that they are my disciples. Because by being one, by being united, by loving one another in community, it is one of the most powerful witnesses and testimonies to the rest of the world that God is good and that God is God. But community is also incredibly important because it forms us and it shapes us. Now, I know that we live in a very individualistic culture that says you can be who you want to be. You are the result of all your hard work, of your effort, of your vision. You can be different. You can be uh, unique. And, 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 and we believe this because our world has now basically created a me-oriented culture. You can have it your way. Uh, everything that you own or buy or can consume, you can do it just the way you want. And market research tells us that that's the way you sell things. Give people that sense that what they're buying or what they're buying into is creating their own identity, their own uniqueness, and they run with it. And so we are led to believe that our identity and who we are is a result of who we want to be. I can become what I want to be. But in reality, every social scientist and sociologist will tell you that you are in fact a product of your community. You are a product of the relationships in your life, not the rationality in your mind of who you think you are. For instance, you are the product of the family you grew up in. You are the product of the church you attend. You are the product of the friends you keep. You are a product of all of these relationships and then some. They have influenced you and you have influenced them. 
And so community is important because it shapes lives. It transforms people. For instance, have you ever said to yourself, when I grow up, I don't want to be like my parents. Have you ever said that before? Have you ever seen your parents do something that that embarrassed you and you're like, you know what, when I grow up and I become a parent, when I'm an adult, I'm not going to be like that. I'm not going to be like them. I said that all throughout my childhood growing up, into my teen years, into college. I'm not going to be like my dad. I'm not going to be like my mom. I'm going to be different. I'm going to be better. I'm going to be new and improved. And as I've gotten older, I realize how similar I actually am. How alike I am to my mom and my dad. My wife reminds me all the time. She says, oh, that thing you said, that thing you did, reminds me of your mom, reminds me of your dad. For instance, when we were growing up, after church, uh, on our way home from, from church to our house, there was a Taco Bell right in the middle. And so our favorite place to go to eat after church was Taco Bell. And our parents would say, okay, let's go home. You know, we're, we're going to eat out today. Where do you guys want to go? My brother and I would always go, Taco Bell, Taco Bell, you know. And, and, they, were, and, and they hated Taco Bell. And, and every once in a while they would cave in and they'd take us to Taco Bell. But we loved Taco Bell. And it was, we had to nag them to go. And I remember thinking when I was a child and, and wanting to go to Taco Bell, I said, you know, when I have kids, I'm going to take them to Taco Bell every day. <laughs> Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And we're going to buy extra and freeze it in the freezer and microwave it just so we can have it at home. I, I said, I'm not going to be like my parents. I'm not going to be stubborn. I'm going to give my kids what they want. And lo and behold... Decades later, now that I'm a father, and I've got children, and now that they know what they want and what they like, when you ask my two older boys, Nathan and Jacob, what is your favorite restaurant, guess what they say? Hands down, Taco Bell, all right? <laughs> they say, whenever we ask them, because my wife and I, we're always trying to figure out like, what, they're, what they're getting into and what they like and their interests. So we're like, what's your favorite food? And they say, Taco Bell is number one. Nothing comes close. Nothing compares. There's like five-way tie for number two. But Taco Bell stands heads and above the rest. That's our favorite restaurant, our favorite food. We can eat Taco Bell anytime, all the time. And I realized, really? And so when I asked them, where do they want to go eat? They go, Dad, come on, you know Taco Bell, right? But I don't want to take them to Taco Bell. And I think, I'm like, oh my gosh, I just became my dad. Because like 25 years ago, my dad said the same thing to me. And so it's like, uh, it's a, it's a tur- inner turmoil. Like, my, 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 you know, my loving side wants to say, Taco Bell's bad for you. It's going to kill you. It's, it's dog food, right? But then that weakness in me, you know, that, that voice within that said, you can be yourself. You can go. Remember what you promised yourself, you know, 25 years ago? Give them Taco Bell. Give them what they want. Because that's what you would have wanted. There was that struggle, but I have become my parents. And I don't let them have what they want. I told myself I'll let them go anytime they want. But if I were to do that, I'd be a terrible parent, right? And so I've become, in so many ways, like my parents. You might, be, you might be saying, well, you've just become a parent. Well, yeah, but I'm realizing in so many other, other ways, I say things and do things and act in ways that are just like them. And so that is why community is so important, because it shapes us in obvious ways and in non-obvious ways. And I really believe that if Cornerstone can be a community of faith, love, and hope, that anyone can join this community and come into this community and be transformed because community has such an effect and power and influence over the lives of people.
Community is important. But the problem is there are challenges to this kind of oneness, reflecting the oneness that we see in God in our community. There's a challenge to cultivating healthy relationships, and James addresses these challenges head on. He doesn't water it down. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? This is the beginning of the verse. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? In other words, he's saying the reason why you are not experiencing oneness in community is because you're selfish. You've got these desires within you that are battling with others. You want it your way, not his or her way. All you care about is your comfort and your convenience and your preference. And when you don't get it the way you want it, a quarrel emerges, a fight arises, a split takes place, cliques start to form because we are the people who like to do this things this way and you are the people who like to do things that way. And really what James is saying is you've got these selfish desires within you. You want something, but you don't get it, so you kill and covet. And not literally, they didn't murder people, but this is more of the, 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 the language that Jesus used in the Beatitudes. If you hate somebody, you've killed, you've killed them. And so James is saying you hate people because they want things that are different than you or they don't want to give you what you want, and so you hate them or you covet what they have. There was a really interesting survey uh, done about 10, years, 10 or 12 years ago where um, a question was asked to people randomly. Would you rather, and there's two scenarios, would you rather make $80,000 a year and live in a neighborhood where everybody else made $70,000 a year, or would you rather make $100,000 a year and live in a neighborhood where everybody in your neighborhood made $120,000 a year? Did you catch that? Option one, make $80,000 a year and you're the richest person in your neighborhood by $10,000 on average. Or make $100,000 a year, $20,000 more, but be, I don't want to say the poorest, but uh, the, le- the least earning person in your neighborhood by, on average, $20,000 a year. And you know what most people said? They said they would rather make less money but have more money than their neighbor than make more money and has, have less money than their neighbor. They would rather make less money and have nicer things than the people around them then make more things and always want what everybody around them has instead. Isn't that incredible what human nature reveals? That we always want what we don't have. And when there are people who have what we want, rather than being happy for them, what is our human instinct? It is to be jealous. It is to covet. It is to say, life is not fair because his car costs $5,000 more than my car. Because his house has two more bedrooms than my house. Because he makes $15,000 more a year than I make a year. Because they go on nicer vacations than we go on. Because he dresses nicer than I dress. Because she has, you know, more friends than I have friends. And so we look at what other people have and what they do. And we covet and we kill. And we hate. And that's what James is calling out here. You quarrel and fight and you do not have because you do not ask God. Well, they're probably saying, well, we do ask God. But then James says, well, you're asking with the wrong motives. You're only asking so you can get what you want. But when's the last time you've been tempted to covet and prayed for that person that God would continue to bless them? Rather, praying, God, can you help me to get what I want or to get what I need? He says, you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. 
And so this is that challenge in our community. We're doing it all the time. It takes place every time we get together. And what really fascinates me is that every letter in the New Testament except for one is addressing a dysfunctional church. You you ever realize that? The Bible is written not for perfect churches and perfect communities and for perfect people. Every letter in the New Testament except for one is addressing a dysfunctional church. And a big part of all of those dysfunctions is relationships or lack of community and oneness. Which means there is no such thing as a perfect church. There is no such thing as a perfect community. There is no such thing as a perfect relationship. There is no such thing as a perfect marriage. Because we are all inherently sinful and selfish. And we have all been raised, all of us here, most of us, all of us, we've been raised in a culture of me-oriented convenience where everything I do, everything I consume, everything I acquire is about making my life easier, better, and nicer. And you might be thinking, no, I don't think that way. But again, everything that we take in, everything that we receive, it's really been geared to make you feel better. And so we take for granted the fact that there are plenty of other people who have not, and we have plenty, and there's a big discrepancy. And I'm going to go into that in the fall. You know, I'm just, just keep, keep, your, keep, uh, keep a, a bookmark on that thought. But what I'm saying here is this. One of the big challenges to community is that we're selfish. They don't have programs that I like to go to. I don't like the preaching. I don't like to stand up that long when I sing. I don't like the people that are sitting around me. I don't like the way they look at me. And we're always thinking about ourselves. And so rather than being a community of oneness, we're just a, a collection of individuals loosely connected and committed to one another. Um, I uh, used to go to California about once a year um, to, uh, to take classes through our denomination. And uh, a couple of times I went out uh, into the Bay Area, Northern California, and I went to uh, this area about an hour south of San Jose called Scotts Valley. Any of you from uh, Northern California know, probably under, uh, know Scotts Valley. It's near, uh, near uh, Santa Cruz, a very beautiful part of California. And uh, I would f- literally for a week spend a, time, uh, a, a week on this, in this retreat center in Scotts Valley. And uh, the most amazing, one of the most beautiful things I experienced there that I, that I don't back here in Boston are the redwood trees. You know what I'm talking about? These huge sequoia redwoods. I mean, they're gigantic. You could take like 12 of us and link our arms together and we'd barely wrap our uh, arms around the trunk of one of these things. They're so high. It's like a skyscraper. And over one of the meals, I was talking to, you know, one of the guys that was from the area and I was like, yo, these trees are amazing. I wish we had more of these in Boston. And they're just so beautiful and magnificent. And he was like, you know, actually... Sequoia, these Sequoia Redwoods only exist in this part of the world. I was like, oh, that's interesting. He said, because if you were to take a seed or a sapling and plant it anywhere else, it would grow, but then it, it would get so big that it wouldn't be able to support its own weight, and it would literally fall over and die. It would tip over and die, and it wouldn't be rooted. But the reason why there are so many redwoods in this part of the world is because there are so many redwoods in this part of the world. It's a forest of redwoods. We're talking about 
tons and tons and tons of redwood. And the reason why they can exist there is because beneath the surface, all of their roots are interconnected and interdependent. And so one redwood by itself doesn't have the the structure and the foundation to stand up against weather and wind and, and storms. But as a forest of redwoods, the roots interconnect, are interdependent with each other. And it allows them to grow and to thrive. And there is no storm that can knock over a redwood when it is in a forest. And that's what community is like. That's why it's important. That's why we need to be interconnected together. But why are we so prideful? James goes on. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And then he says, what do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? Do you think God gave us this envious spirit? He says, but God gives us more grace. That is why Scripture said God opposes opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, I don't know where James gets this quote. You can't find this in the scriptures. I don't really know what he's referring to. But because he quoted it, it's in scripture. It's scripture now. (laughs) All right? But it says, God opposes opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The reason why we have all of these competing desires, the reason why we're so selfish, the reason why we fight and argue and quarrel is because we're selfish. But why are we selfish? James is saying it's because we're proud. Because of spiritual pride. And let me explain this by quoting from a book written by Jonathan Edwards called Thoughts on Revival. Jonathan Edwards was a great theologian that brought revival uh, to the country twice, the Great Awakening. And uh, he was a fiery preacher, and uh, many people uh, study him and read his works today. And um, he uh, basically uh, studied uh, revival in his time and in his day, and he was a part of many of them. And he talks about revival as a time, a period in the life of a church where there's incredible growth, uh, where the people are excited and glad to be together, uh, and lives are being transformed. He calls this revival. And he says, every single time revival ends in any church or any region or city, it's always because of fighting. And he says, the fighting always happens and destroys the revival because of pride. And so what he does is he compares the difference between pride and humility. And I think it's a really great inventory for us to look at. So let's take a look at this together. Pride, Jonathan Edwards says, makes you more aware of other people's faults than you are of your own. Pride makes you more aware of what he or she did wrong or what they're not good at Or oftentimes when you're sitting in a sermon and you're like, oh, I know who should be here right now and listening to this sermon because they need to be hearing this. That's you, then you're prideful. (laughs) Because you're thinking of somebody else who needs to hear this because they've got problems in their lives, because they're prideful, they're selfish, so they need to be sitting here. And half of you already thought that thought as we were getting into this, but now I busted you. (laughs) You're the prideful person. Pride makes you more aware of what other people are doing wrong, but humility disposes you to be far more aware of your own faults than the faults of other people. So spiritual pride is, you guys are all messed up, and you're just judgmental and you're condemning all the time. He's got a big mouth. She's so selfish. They can't stop gossiping. He's so materialistic. But humility says, 
Why do I always stick my foot in my big mouth? Why am I struggling with materialism? What's going on in me? It's more introspective. Jonathan Edwards says, Pride leads you to have an air of contempt and disdain toward other people. You disrespect them. You dislike them simply because they're not like you or they're different or they've offended you. But humility says whenever you speak of others' faults, you do so with grief and mercy because you mourn and you long for them to be more like Christ. Rather than saying, I don't care about you, I disrespect you because you're disrespectable, humility says, well, I only recognize those faults because I wish God would transform you and make you more holy. Pride says, Uh, You separate from people who criticize you or you criticize, right? So if we don't get along together and we're criticizing each other or we don't have anything in common, then we separate ourselves. We form a clique or we leave the church or we, you know, stop coming to a small group or whatever it might be and you stop relating with people because they've criticized you or because you're the one criticizing them. But humility, you stick with people even through difficult relationships, I'm not making this up. This is what Jonathan Edwards wrote. And he observed this through churches that went through revivals and churches that stopped experiencing revival because of these two columns. Churches that experienced revival, the people came in and they realized these people are hard to love. It's messy to be in community with them. But I'm going to stick it out. Because am I better? No, I'm not. Am I more righteous? Not really. I'm just as sinful. I'm just as impatient. I'm just as annoying as he or she but you stick it out. But revival doesn't happen when you come into the church and you realize, man, relationships are messy. It's too much work, too much drama. I just forget it. I'm just going to distance myself. You know, actually what I'll do is I'll go to a different church so I don't have to deal with it. But the church you're going to is going to have drama. It's going to have sin. And sooner or later, you're going to be hurt by it too. There is no perfect place. There's three more, just in case you thought you were off the hook. Pride is dogmatic and sure about every point of belief. You're one of those people, you know, you're you're absolutely certain that your way is the right way. But humility says, I can transcend the differences that we have and I can extend grace and charity to you. Yeah, maybe you, you think differently than I do. Maybe you have a different perspective or opinion. And I don't have to argue with you to win, but you know what? I can transcend that difference and I can extend an understanding, a charity, a grace. Pride says, Uh, I confront other people to win arguments, right? So you're always confrontational because you want to show them that you're right or you want to point out something in them that's wrong. Or sometimes, and and, and again, you might think the opposite is not confronting people, but pride is also not confronting people because uh, you're afraid or you're avoiding conflict. And you're probably thinking, how is that pride? Well, basically you're thinking it's not worth it. This person's not worth it or that conflict or that pain or that tension is not worth it. So I will just not confront that person. If that is pride, humility is confronting when necessary. It's speaking the truth in love. It's having the courage and the strength and the humility to go and say, hey, I want to talk to you about something. Not to show you that I'm right and you're wrong. Not to show you that I'm better and you're worse. Because this is really weighing on me and I just want to share it with you and I'm not going to beat you over the head with it, but I just want to lay it out. Finally, pride is believing that you're entitled to a good life. I deserve what I have. I deserve better. This church isn't good enough for me. These friends aren't good enough for me. I deserve more. I deserve better. It's this feeling of entitlement. But humility says you believe you deserve to be cast off, but it's only by God's grace that you're still alive. Humility says, you know, I don't deserve anything that I have. I don't deserve the money in my bank account, the food in my fridge, the car that I drive to and from work. But it is because of God's grace 
that he sustains me and allows me to live and to breathe and to thrive. That's humility. So let's do a quick inventory. Are you more prideful or are you more humble? Do you wrestle with spiritual pride or, or are you more in the area of spiritual humility? Just ask yourself that question. Where do you fall under? Because if most of us fall under pride, we will never experience the wonderful potential for community that God has created us to exist as. And humility is not thinking less of yourself. Oh, what was me? I'm no good. I'm bad. Everybody's better. No, that's, that's just low self-esteem. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less and thinking of others more. It's looking at your life as not your own, but it's your life for others. God has not put you on this earth so that you can be comfortable and you can live and experience everything for your own comfort and your own gain. But God has put you in this world so that you can live for other people. Because unless we're all thinking in that way, we will never have community because we'll all be living for ourselves. And we'll be a community of strangers and we'll be all isolated from one another. But if I'm able to transcend our differences or lower myself, humble myself, to serve you, to edify you, to bless you, even if I don't want to, even if I don't like to, what you're doing is you're dying to yourself, but you're resurrecting community. Do you hear that? And all of us are here today because, most of us at least, because for 18 years of our lives, our parents died for us every day. They gave up their comfort, they gave up their convenience, they gave up their preferences, they gave up a lot of their money to raise us. They died to themselves to give us life. And one day when you become a parent, you'll understand it in a whole new way. And that's the way life works. Because if you live for yourself, you'll only be grumpier and you'll only covet more and you'll only be lonelier. And you'll be more a friend of this world than an enemy of God. But if we learn the principle of dying to ourselves so that others can live, I don't always have to be right. I don't always have to be the best. I don't always have to be the one heard. This is a struggle for me. It's a struggle for you. This is a struggle for our church. And if we want healthy relationships... If we want meaningful friends and families in our lives, we need to grasp this principle. Because God gives more grace to the humble. Humility is not weakness. It's not shyness. It's not having a weak backbone. The Bible calls Moses the most humble and meek person who ever lived. Was Moses weak and shy? Well, some people tend to think that. But would you call a man who went to the most powerful ruler who had ever existed that time and asked him to let go for nothing his most valuable workforce that was for free, literally the slaves of Israel, and say, give me your free labor that is basically giving you your kingdom and everything that you are able to afford, and let us leave with nothing. Does it take a shy person, a weak person, to negotiate that kind of a deal? Or does it take a strong person, a courageous person, a humble person, to approach a dictator and to ask for such a great request. A friend of mine once told me, humility is knowing who you are and knowing who God is. 
So that when you know who you are and you know who God is, it puts you in perspective. But also when you know who you are, you don't have to worry what other people say about you to your face or behind your back. You know who you are. But if you know who God is, you know that you can also forgive and extend that forgiveness to those who may sin against you and hurt you. It's understanding that reality. So James is saying you're fighting because you're selfish and you're selfish because you're prideful. So how do we overcome these challenges to being a church that's united, to having relationships that are united, to having friendships that are pleasing to God, to be in families that are healthy? Because all of us can look back and reflect on our lives and we can point out instances, relationships, breakups, heartbreaks, disappointments, fights and arguments that have jaded us or hardened us. And we've almost given up hope in the fact that we just don't care anymore. We've become apathetic. How can we reverse that and reclaim and regain the biblical community and oneness that God has called us to be? Well, let me leave you with two points here. James says in verse 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, we read this in English especially, and we're kind of like, man, that's, a, that's mean. That's low. I mean, gosh, James, you were bold to call the church out and call them adulterous people, but we lose the translation into English. In the Greek, what James is calling the people are adulteresses. He doesn't call them adulterous people. He calls them adulteresses, which is... Uh, the feminine distinction for a people that have become unfaithful to God. In other words, really what James is doing here, and this is in his theology, and it really points back to the way the rest of the Bible, the biblical theology, really points to James and how they kind of balance and work together. There's a sense that our relationship to God is not that he's just our father, he's just our creator and just our maker, but that Christ, his son, who is God, is also our spouse, our husband. He is the bridegroom and we are the bride. And when we are not in community together and we're fighting and arguing and coveting and murdering people in our minds and in our thoughts, we're not cheating on people. We're cheating on Christ. James is saying, remember the covenant love that you have with Christ. So love him. And you have to love yourself as the bride to the bridegroom. In other words, as you think about the fact that we are the bride of Christ, it reminds us of his incredible love for us. We're not a stranger, we're not an outcast, but we are God's beloved. And he would only call us an adulteress if that meant that we had the the capability and 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 the standing to be faithful spouses or beloved people. Do you get what I'm saying? James is calling us out and he's saying, when you fight and quarrel, you're being unfaithful to God. But God loves you so much that he calls you his spouse, so be faithful to him. Know that he loves you. And secondly, James says, he gives more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. There's this sort of upside down, inside out principle that you see oftentimes in the gospel. And James is saying it right here. He says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. In other ways, he's saying the only way in is the way out. The only way up is the way down. 
The only way you can build true community is to die for it. It's to surrender your life. To surrender your needs, your wants, your preferences, your comfort and your convenience. And this is hard to do because all our lives we've been shaped to live for ourselves. And this is really the battle that's being waged in our hearts right now. In Romans 15, Paul tells the church, don't oppress the weak, but lift them up in the way that Christ lifted up the church. And I think that's a huge understatement because God didn't just give up his glory to come down to earth, although that was huge. God also gave up, he took on flesh, he gave up some of his rights, and he ultimately gave up his life so that we could be the beloved community. Christ laid down his life for us. He gave up his glory for us. He gave up his throne for us. So what does that mean for us? That means we must lay down our lives for one another. We must give up our glory for one another. We must give up our rights for one another. I'm not saying be a melting pot where you give up your individuality and your uniqueness. Rather, we need to be more like a salad bowl. Right? Not like a melting pot where everything melts and blends together and there's just no flavor or distinction, but a salad bowl where there's diversity and uniqueness all tossed together. That's who we're called to be. But in order to be a good salad, we've got to lay down our rights. We've got to submit. We've got to become humble. So how can we do this? Three quick points on how to do this. One, join this church, okay? Become a member, officially or not officially, but commit yourself, commit yourself here. Don't be like a redwood who says, I'm going to hang out with this forest, and then once I'm strong enough to go out on my own, I will, because you will walk out on your own and you will fall down and die. I, it really breaks my heart when people leave the church because they think they can find something better out in the world. And I'm not saying this is the best church or the best place to be. By far, I'm not saying that. But you're walking away from the community that was intended to support you best. So join this church, formally, informally. Be committed. Don't sit on the fringe, but move toward the center. Secondly, go to a small group if you're not in one already. We've designed our Friday nights to help people to find small groups. We start by doing small group every Friday, actually. And Friday night, I mean, come on. You, I mean, we're busy, but Friday nights are usually pretty free. So come on out. We're trying to build community this way. Or maybe you work Friday nights. Maybe you're on call or you've got something that you have to take care of on Friday nights. Well, we have groups during the week. Find out when they are and join one. Go to one. But join a small group. Our church is a little too big for us to have this dream that we can all become best friends with one another. But that doesn't mean we can't invest in relationships in this church with people that we're able to do that with. And lastly, be hospitable. Everybody here can be hospitable. Invite people into your home. Invite people into your life. Take them out for coffee. Make dinner for them. Serve them. Don't come to church like you're a guest, come to church like you're a host. And look around you and say, who do I need to serve today? Not, 
why isn't anybody serving me? Because when we come and we think we're guests, we're just waiting for the red carpet to be rolled out for us. And when it isn't, we're just disappointed. But when we come with a towel wrapped around our waist like Jesus, the ultimate servant king, servant leader, we come into this room and we start to pay attention to the needs of others. We say, you know what, my needs aren't being met, but I know I can meet that person's needs in one small way. I can lift that person up. I can encourage him. I can encourage her. And there are a thousand and one different ways that we can do that right here, beginning today and right now. So join this church, join a small group, and become hospitable. Christ laid down his life, left glory, so that we could have life. So let us do the same for one another. Let me pray for us. Father, we... uh, Thank you so much for your word. We thank you for James and uh, this letter that he wrote to um, challenge the church to be more gospel-centered. Not self-centered, not self-absorbed, not self-fulfilling, but to be more gospel-centered, to be more Christ-centered, to be more Christ-like. And Father, we confess that it is hard to do. Even on our best days, Lord, we struggle to think good thoughts about people that get under our skin. We admit that relationships are messy. That it's just so much easier for us to break relationship and leave and start new ones rather than working out the broken ones that we already have. But Father, that's why you have taught us the ministry of reconciliation. That is the reason why you have forgiven us. So that as we understand the incredible forgiveness you have given us, we can also extend forgiveness to others. And so, Father, over the next few weeks, as we are on this journey of learning what it means to love one another the way that you have loved us, to be a community of faith, love, and hope, to understand forgiveness, to understand friendship, to understand family, to understand surrender, submission, and service, Father, speak to us so that the world will know through our example and our love for one another that you are God and you are good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, uh, I want to invite you to come to the table because this is the place where we can be restored with God, where we can renew our relationship with Him. And this is also the place where you can come and ask God to help you restore and renew your relationship with others. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took a piece of bread and he broke it in two. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, he took the cup and he poured it out. And he said, this is my blood shed for you. This is the cup of the new covenant, the cup of salvation. Take and drink. Do this in remembrance of me. And so when we come to the table and we take a piece of bread and we dip it into this cup, this juice that represents his body and his blood, we are renewing our commitment, our oneness with God. We are receiving forgiveness. We come with an attitude and heart of repentance. But as we come today, I want you to really search your heart and pray and ask God to give you the strength to love those people in your life that have been really, 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 really hard to love those people that have just been getting under your skin, who have been annoying you to the point where life is just not 
sweet anymore because this just stresses you out or bothers you or you just can't stand to think of their happiness or their joy or their being right or wrong or you being right or wrong. Let that go. Don't carry that weight. Lay it down at the foot of the cross. These people sitting with you are not your enemies. They are your friends. They are your family. So as we come to the table today, let's ask the Lord to renew our relationships, to lead us into that ministry of reconciliation. I'd like to invite the communion team to join me up front so that we can prepare the elements. And in a moment, I'll invite you to join us as well. Come to the table when you're ready. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior, art Thou. If ever I love Thee, my Jesus.
us in a word of prayer. Uh, Father, as we uh, come to the table, as we have come to the table to remember your death, we recognize that the very elements that we have consumed are the most simple elements that give us life. In your death, you have given us life. And so, Lord, in the same way, in like manner, may we die to ourselves so that others may live, that we may bless others. May we give of our time, of our energy, of our resources, so as to be a blessing to others, not only here, but to the ends of the earth. And may the world know that we are your disciples by living that out each and every day, a thousand times a day. We ask for your strength. We ask for your grace. Lift us up. In Jesus' name, amen. As we uh, enter into our closing set of worship, we also want to take this time to take up an offering. So if you have come prepared to give, uh, you may do so at this time. If you're just visiting, um, please just let the bucket pass. We don't expect you to give uh, unless this is your church. So let us all rise and prepare for worship. As we go into our offering, I love this this message that we just heard. One of the things that I really love about the gospel that we have is the Bible is like really specific sometimes with the names, with the titles that it gives us. The Bride of Christ as a church, more than conquerors. We see that in Romans. And we see all these these awesome things and. 
here in James, we see he calls us an adulteress, as Pastor Eugene said. And it's a little scary. It's a little overwhelming at first. But I'd love for us to just consider for a second. Some of us are married. I'm not married. But some people here are married. And 